When I was growing up, I mostly had to share a bedroom with at least one of my siblings. You see, I'm the oldest of six kids, and so bedrooms were a hot commodity in our house growing up. But for a few years there, in the middle of my growing up years, I actually got to have my own room, and it was great. I had this sweet bunk bed in my room, but I didn't actually have to share it with anybody. So I slept on the top bunk, because kind of the highlight of my existence was jumping off the top of the bunk bed every morning. That was the most fun thing I ever got to do. So, on the top of my bunk bed, my mattress itself was a little smaller than the actual wooden bed frame, so I had this gap all around the mattress where I could store all kinds of extra stuff, you know, books or snacks or extra blankets or, or a drink or something. And now, I love drinking milk. I, I'm a milkaholic, okay? The, my favorite animal is the dairy cow. So one night before I went to bed, I went and I got a glass of milk and I took it up there on the top bunk, but I must have fallen asleep before I got done drinking this whole glass of milk and I just set it there in the gap beside my mattress. And now something else you need to know about me. I am the most forgetful person that I have ever met. Um, I, my memory is like a steel trap, okay? It's rusty and it's really hard to open. Doesn't work very well. So, uh, when I woke up in the morning, jumped off the bed probably, I completely forgot that glass of milk that was still there in the gap by my mattress. So it sat there for the whole day, and the whole next day, and the whole day after that, and so on and so forth. Something else you need to know about me. I can't smell very well. <laughs> So if you smell bad, we can probably be friends because I probably can't tell. So I didn't even notice this glass of milk sitting there doing its thing day after day until one day, for whatever reason, I decided to put that cup of milk away. And when I looked in that cup, I realized that what once was liquid <laughs> had turned solid. <laughs> That will just make your stomach churn, watching milk curdle like that. It has to be one of the most gross things that can possibly happen. It makes me want to gag. That's what happens, though, to stale room temperature milk over time. It curdles. While I'm on a rant this morning, can I whine for a second? I hate the word lukewarm. Some of you guys get cool things associated with your name. You know, be like Mike, or Stan the Man, or Honest Abe, or George of the Jungle. I get lukewarm. <laughs> cool. <laughs> you know who else hates lukewarm? God. A lukewarm life makes God gag. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 3 this morning. That's what we're going to see today in the last of the seven letters, Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea. A lukewarm life makes God gag. God wholeheartedly hates a half-hearted faith. And the church in Laodicea is curdling with lukewarm Christianity. 
So first, let's look at this condition of lukewarm Christianity that's infecting the church. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So the first thing about this condition is they're neutral. They are neither hot nor cold. And when Jesus introduces himself here, he says that he is the amen, which means truly or confidently or certainly. In other words, everything that Jesus says is trustworthy and everything he promises, whether positive or negative, will happen. And in Laodicea, there's not much positive at all. Oh, Laodicea was a happening city. They were rich, cultured, proud, but the city had one big problem. They lacked their own water supply. That's a pretty big deal. So they had to pipe in water from other places. Now, ancient engineers were no dummies. These people were no less intelligent than we are. They figured out how to create these systems of aqueducts and piping for many miles over hills and valleys, and they were precise enough in their incline that the water would flow at a consistent speed so as to not make the pipes burst. Pretty impressive. You can actually go to the ruins of Laodicea today and see these aqueducts. So Laodicea had to pipe in hot water from the town of Hierapolis, which was about six miles away. But by the time the water from the hot springs got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm, nasty, full of minerals. And Laodicea got cold water from the snowy mountains of Colossae, about 10 miles away. But by the time that cold water got to Laodicea, it too was lukewarm. Now here's the deal. Personally, I don't think that Jesus is saying here, I wish you were either hot on fire for me or cold, rejecting me completely. He may be, but I think rather that Jesus is saying hot water and cold water are both useful, but lukewarm water is good for nothing. Hot water is great for bathing. Cold water is really nice to drink, but lukewarm water? Blech. Personally, I love sweet iced tea. That's my Achilles heel. Sometimes if my throat is hurting or something, I even like hot tea. But lukewarm tea? Nah. A lot of you people probably like hot coffee. A lot of you probably like iced coffee. But any, anybody ever walked away from your cup of coffee for a little too long and came back and took a sip and it was room temperature? Gross. A lukewarm life makes... God, gag. My wife's car is a 1998 tan Buick Century. It's a horrible car by most people's standards. It's a rust bucket. Uh, I mean, I've mostly given up on looking cool driving this car, but I love this car, this 98 Buick Century. I love it. I drove it here this morning. It's great, okay? That thing is like a recliner on wheels. It rides so smooth. Those seats are so soft. I cannot take that car on a road trip because if I do, I will fall asleep. I love this car. But here's the deal with my wife's 98 Buick Century. The heater doesn't work on low, it only works on the higher settings or not at all. So you are either really hot or really cold. I drove this car to church this morning. It's sitting out there in the parking lot. And the first half of my drive to church this morning was very cold. 
And the second half, my toes were sweating. And that's what Jesus wants from us. He doesn't want no halfway kind of faith. He wants us all in. God wholeheartedly hates a half-hearted faith. Don't be neutral. And because this church is neutral, and because they are neutral, they are nauseating. Nauseating. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And that's true in the city of Laodicea. If you drank that lukewarm water with all its minerals in it without doing anything to it, it would make you sick. And just like that lukewarm water in Laodicea was useless and disgusting, a half-hearted spirituality is useless and disgusting to God. My son Judah is three and a half months old now, and his favorite pastime is spitting up. Okay, this kid is a vomit factory. Carrying him around, especially after he eats, is like carrying around a blender without a lid on. You're just asking for trouble, okay? I've heard one person say before, did you know that babies are nauseated by the smell of a clean shirt? (laughs) And that's true. (laughs) And that's what our half-hearted religion makes God want to do. Religious neutrality, spiritual neutrality, moral neutrality is nauseating to God. Notice here that Jesus is not even worried about the beliefs in the church. He's not condemning them for any kind of false teaching. No, he says, I know your deeds, your deeds. So is your lifestyle, your deeds, your works neutral? Nauseating to God? Do you look like everyone else? Have you so assimilated to the world around you that you've just become lukewarm, room temperature? If there's a sin in our life that we refuse to confess and repent of, we make God sick. If we ride the fence and we come to church and we go through the motions of Christianity but we have no daily relationship with Jesus, we make God sick. If we claim to be Christians, but we refuse to be inconvenienced by the messy people whom God places in our lives and in our church, we make God sick. If we come to church and we use our mouths to praise the Lord, and then we go out and we use our mouths to complain and to gossip and to slander, we make God sick. If we say one thing in church and then we go around our non-Christian friends and say something completely different, we make God sick. If we love the church and we read the Bible and we love the rhythms of the Christian faith, but we refuse to open our lives to the needy and to the lost, we make God sick. If we do one thing when people are watching us and something totally different when people aren't, we make God sick. A neutral life is nauseating to God. God wholeheartedly hates a half-hearted faith. So what's the cause of this lukewarm Christianity? Look in verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. 
So the first cause of lukewarm Christianity is false self-sufficiency. They have deceived themselves into thinking that they have everything that they need. You all remember that classic story of the emperor's new clothes? Anybody remember that from when you were a kid? It's the story of this proud and conceited emperor who loves fine clothing. And so one day, a couple con men come, and they told him that they had the secret to making the finest, most beautiful cloth imaginable. But here's the catch. The cloth would be invisible to anybody who was stupid or incompetent. So the emperor, he loves this idea. He pays these con men tons of money to make some of these magic clothes for him. Well, as the story goes on, many people swing by to watch the con men working. And of course, they're only pantomiming. There's nothing actually there. But nobody wants to admit that they might be stupid or incompetent. So they all remark at just how beautiful these clothes are. This cloth is just coming along fabulously. The emperor himself, he can't even see a thing. But he doesn't want to appear weak or dumb. So he plays along. In fact, they decide to have a great parade to celebrate the emperor's new wonderful outfit. So the con men stripped the emperor down to his birthday suit and they pretend to fit him into his new outfit and they paraded him up and down the streets of the town showing off his splendid getup. Nobody wanted to seem weak or incompetent so they ooed and they awed over the emperor's beautiful new clothes until one little child pipes up and says, Ha! He doesn't have anything on. (laughs) And one by one, all these proud people realize that finally, the kid was right. The emperor had nothing on. And the emperor himself hears the rumblings in the crowd. And in his heart, he knew that they were right. He was naked. But he thought to himself, no, the parade must go on. And so on he marched, naked as a jaybird, with his servants behind him, carrying the train to his robe that was not even there. And this church in Laodicea, I mean, they think everything's fine and dandy. But Jesus reveals their nakedness. You see, Laodicea was a proud and prosperous city. They were the financial center of the entire region. In fact, they were so wealthy that when an earthquake decimated the city, Laodicea didn't take grants from Rome like the other cities did in order to rebuild. They actually rebuilt themselves with their own money. And they were proud of it. They prided themselves on being self-sufficient. Well, where'd they get all their money? Why was Laodicea so rich? Well, part of the wealth came from these local farmers who bred this particular kind of black sheep that had this really fine black wool you could make into cloth. And Laodicea also had a state-of-the-art medical school. They specialized, actually, in eye doctors. They made this salve that helped your eyesight. They were really on the cutting edge of of, uh, eye doctors. So Laodicea, they're really proud of this. They're proud of their wealth and their self-sufficiency. Yet they weren't self-sufficient, were they? They had to pipe in water from somewhere else. And so Jesus, he looks at their pride and their arrogant false self-sufficiency and he says, you guys think you've got it all together. You think you're so wealthy because of all the banking in your town. I'm telling you, you can get real gold from me. You think that you know how to heal eyes better than anybody else in the world, but you're actually blind, but I can make you see. You think that you guys can make the best clothes around, but I'm telling you, you're actually naked. Come get white robes from me. The delusion of their self-sufficiency makes God want to vomit. It was their false self-sufficiency that led to their lukewarm Christianity. And at the heart of this supposed self-sufficiency was pride. It's just pride. 
There's three things about pride that I think lead us to lukewarm Christianity. First, pride blinds us to the reality of our own condition. Just like that emperor and his clothes, they didn't see themselves clearly because of their pride. If any of you have ever been to a county fair or a circus or something, you've gone through a house of mirrors, you know those things? They, they make me look really tall, which is saying something. And pride is like looking in one of those mirrors. It gives you a distorted self-image. Now, Steve pointed out a, a, a survey to me this week that this online dating website did a survey, and 40% of the people surveyed thought that they were geniuses. They classified themselves as geniuses. Two out of five people said they were a genius. The percentage was actually even higher for men. 46% of men called themselves a genius. That's really offensive to those of us who actually are geniuses. <laughs> But that's true, right? It's easier to see the fault in other people than it is in yourself. We always kind of just assume that we are better, don't we? And yet Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are we when we are humble enough to recognize our spiritual nakedness, our spiritual blindness, our spiritual poverty, my dad says, if I knew the sin in your heart, I would not want to talk to you. And if you knew the sin in my heart, you would not want to listen. And that's the condition with every one of us. We have nothing apart from the grace of God. And yet pride blinds us to that reality. Jesus tells a story about this in Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pride blinds us to the reality that we are in daily, desperate need of God's mercy. Second thing, I have a friend who says that pride can only exist in people who hold a low view of Jesus. In other words, we only think arrogantly about ourselves if we think flippantly about Jesus. Because a proper understanding of his identity always brings us to a place of humility. Just look at what Jesus calls himself in the opening of this letter. He says that he is the ruler of God's creation. He alone is self-sufficient. He's never lacked anything. He's never faced a problem that he couldn't solve or an obstacle that he could not overcome. He's the author of life, the defeater of death, the creator of the world, the king of the universe, the owner of all the glory that is to be had, which doesn't leave much left over for you. 
His power is limitless. His love is boundless. His subjects are countless. His wonders are endless. His timing is impeccable. His sufficiency is inexhaustible. His works are innumerable. His wisdom is immeasurable. His splendor is incalculable. And his reign is unstoppable. Jesus alone is truly self-sufficient. And this church, in their pride, was merely self-deceived. Let us not be proud and diminish the glory of Jesus. Thirdly, pride prevents us from living in the power of God. Because pride naturally focuses on our own strength, doesn't it? Which distracts us then from God's strength. That's why Jesus had such hard things to say about money. Money's not inherently bad. It can be a blessing. But it can also very quickly become a stumbling block. Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's not a sin to have money. It's a sin to love money and trust money. Because money can make us feel like we don't need God. And Laodicea, they had great riches. They had good doctors, a thriving economy. Why do they need God? Why, why stick out for your faith when everything seems to be going so well? Why do we need God? We have a growing economy. People are flocking to Hendricks County, good school districts, warehouses full of material wealth, shopping centers galore, more fancy hospitals than you can shake a stick at, all the social affirmation you could ever want online, fat retirement accounts, good savings plan, really nice restaurants. We live these nice, tidy, little Mayberry, Plainfield, Laodicea lives. We think we have everything we need. And yet it's only when we come to the end of our own power that we can come to the beginning of God's power. And pride, acting like we've got it all together, like we don't need help, like you've got your life figured out, plotted out, planned out, and put together perfectly, prevents you from living in the power of God. And this false self-sufficiency results in spiritual complacency. Spiritual complacency. In other words, when you think you have it all together, you may still come to church, but you're not in it for the right reasons. Here are some reasons that we've heard of why people come to church. It's good for the kids. Provides a nice moral foundation for the family. It makes me a better person. I feel good. Uh, my family came to church growing up. It's just what we've always done. It's how I find friends and get involved in community. It means a lot to my wife when I come. And all those things may be true, but if that's why we're here, no wonder we're lukewarm. No wonder we don't have a growing personal relationship with Jesus. No wonder you're neutral. You have to recognize first that you don't have it all together. That you are a hopeless, wretched sinner condemned to die and that your only hope is to throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ every day. Your only hope is his grace. Your only hope is his death on the cross on your behalf. 
Your only hope is to reorient your life around that belief and live for him. And then, when you recognize your poverty, you can overcome your apathy. And I'm afraid that some of you today don't understand the depths of your own sin. Some of you today may be living in material wealth and spiritual poverty. And if I stabbed a thermometer in your chest and I took the spiritual temperature of your heart right now, it would read about room temperature. Lukewarm. God wholeheartedly hates a half-hearted faith. But yet he's not done with us. He says, hey, I've got everything you need. Jesus says, you may be poor, but I'm offering you gold more pure than money can buy. You may be naked, but I'm offering you white robes that are washed clean in my blood. You may be blind, but I can open your eyes so that you can truly see yourself and you can truly see my love. So if you're lukewarm today, then know that God wholeheartedly hates a half-hearted faith. If you don't feel like you're really living the way that Jesus is calling you to, if you're not really sticking out for him, if your, church, if your heart is not warm to him, let's talk. Let's make this a church not of spiritual complacency, but spiritual vibrancy. So here's the cure for lukewarm Christianity. Verse 19. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. These are hard things that Jesus is saying to Laodicea and to us today, but he's doing it out of love. It's like when I was a kid and I'd be getting a spanking and my dad would have me bent over his knee and he'd say, now son, I'm doing this because I love you. This hurts me more than it hurts you. As a kid, I'm thinking, whatever, dad. (laughs) But then I'd get spanked, I'd get disciplined and my dad would always bring me in for a hug. He'd tell me that he loved me and he'd talk to my heart. So Jesus disciplines the church here And now he's going to talk to our hearts with an exhortation and an invitation. Here's the exhortation. Be earnest and repent. This word for earnest actually comes from the Greek word where we get our word for zealous. So be zealous. Be on fire. If you truly believe that you are a sinner and that your only hope for life is Jesus Christ, then that just can't be just another nice fact that you mentally affirm and then go on living however you want. That has to be what you build your whole life around. And the best way for you to love the world is for you to share that reality and the hope that you have. Don't be neutral. Don't be lukewarm. Be boiling hot so that when people see the Holy Spirit steam rolling off your back, they wonder what you've got and they want some of it. Be zealous. God wholeheartedly hates a half-hearted faith. That's the exhortation. Here's the invitation. You can't live differently when you're living self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiently. You gotta let Jesus into your life. Verses 20 through 22, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a famous text, right? Jesus knocking on the door. 
He wants intimacy with us, nearness with us, a relationship with us, spiritual vibrancy, not the complacency that comes from false self-sufficiency. Because notice, this church here in Laodicea, they think they're fine, but notice who's not in the church. Jesus. Have we excommunicated the Christ? (laughs) And we've heard this text used as an evangelism text for non-Christians, but look how Jesus is actually using this. He's talking to Christians who may be on the verge of becoming non-Christians. He's knocking on the door of the hearts of those of you who may have chosen to lock him out. Will you let him in? Jesus wants in. But he's the perfect gentleman. He's not going to barge in. He's not going to force himself onto you. The door has to be open from within. He wants an invitation. So if you haven't invited him yet, don't leave him standing out in the cold. Let him in today. And for those of us who have let him in, he wants to have dinner with us. So we're going to come to this time of communion. We're going to recognize that we desperately need him. We have nothing without him. And this is going to be a time where we thank him for his death and his life and his presence here among us that gives us this treasure and this life beyond our wildest imaginations because we worship this God who's not half-hearted in his faith. He's not lukewarm in his love. He's so wholeheartedly committed that he went all the way to the cross for us. What a mighty God we serve. Let's sing together.